Sometimes you just want the quick facts. No opinions, no speculation. I'm Claire Thornton, an audio editor with USA Today. My team works around the clock to bring you the Five Things podcast. Every morning, me and my co-host Taylor Wilson help you know what to keep an eye out for that day. We always have a fresh mix of stories, from politics to entertainment to sports, covering all parts of the country. On Sundays, you can lean back with in-depth episodes about stories you may have heard earlier that week. Go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows and start listening to Five Things today. Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Governor Ron DeSantis faces backlash for telling high school kids to take off their masks. Florida lawmakers near the end of the 60-day legislative session, and the Conservative Political Action Conference offers a window into the direction of the GOP. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson, and those are some of the stories I'll be discussing today with Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy and Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Finns. First... John, it's the end of the session. I know you got a million numbers swimming through your head from the budget and other things. What what do you got for us today? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, every now and again, I get out of the building and I'm thinking, you know, it's springtime and Florida is known as the golf capital of the world. So, Zach, I'm here today with a four. (laughs) All right. Watch out. John's coming in from uh, left field with this number. And uh, how about you, Antonio? Uh, You know, when John goes low, I go high, the high road. So I'm at three hundred forty eight thousand. All right, and I have 85 today. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, a video of DeSantis telling high school kids attending one of his press conferences to take off their masks went viral this week, generating millions of views and a lot of discussion. Antonio, DeSantis has really rocketed to stardom in the GOP as a warrior against COVID-19 restrictions, but... Even in war, there are some targets that are generally considered off limits, right? I mean, kids would be one of them. You would think so, but no. The mega universe takes no prisoners and makes no allowances. In fact, remember the way DeSantis' hero, former President Trump, mocked global climate activist Greta Thunberg? Look, you can disagree with climate activists all you want, but as a person in a powerful position, you have to keep some of your battle instincts in check when it comes to minors, period. But you know what struck me watching that clip of the governor, and I've watched it numerous times, as most of us have, uh, is the governor's demeanor. He spoke to those kids with kids with disgust, irritation, anger. You know, he could have just gone up to them and said, hello, thank them for being there, and then asked them to take take the mask off, saying that they weren't necessary. Look, and it's conceivable that they didn't need the mask up, but that's not what the governor did. Instead, he scolded them, he demeaned them, he berated them. He, you know, he just went all mean girls on them. And yes, let's just say it, he bullied them. Uh, So just two conclusions here. First, governor, be best, just be best. And and for those kids, and there were a few of them that kept their masks on, you know what, kudos for you to you for standing up for your principles. Your parents have raised you well. Too bad that in free Florida, free doesn't really apply to you. Too bad that when the governor kept insisting it was up to parents and students to make personal decisions on whether to wear a mask, he obviously wasn't talking about you. In your case, you obviously have, have to do what the governor says, or he'll wag his finger at you while he's chastising you. To paraphrase George Orwell's Animal Farm in the Santa's Land, all Floridians are free, but some Floridians are more free than others. 
Antonio, this incident really seems to have broken through and it's really being shared far and wide. Uh, the anchor at WFLA, the uh, NBC station in Tampa, tweeted out a video of the incident and that video already has more than 10 million views. His tweet was shared uh, more than 24,000 times. This seems you have people weighing in uh, from all corners of, of the country on this, uh, you know, celebrities, congressmen, uh, whoever. Why do you think that this has really touched a nerve? Uh, it, it sounds like you think it's not necessarily about mass, but just more about what it says about the governor's personality. Your question hit it on the head. You know, in most places, kids are seen as you, you don't are not as targets. You, 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 you sort of deal with them differently. Not in, MAGA, in the MAGA universe. The problem is that MAGA universe is not the entire country. There's, there's the rest of the country, there's the rest of the planet that understand there, there are certain, in politics in particular, there are certain limits, certain boundaries, certain decorum that you show. And the governor in his berating of these kids, and then look at the way he talks to them. It's not just what he told them, it is the way that he talks to them, the way that he scolds them. I think for a lot of people that crossed the line. Now the governor may not see it, his base may not see it, they, they may be applauding it, you know. but the fact of the matter is the rest of the country, and that's why this has broken through because people have seen this and they, wait a minute, you know, this, this is, you, know, you went too far here. Not to mention the obvious hypocrisy that you've been, you know, spent two years talking about how it's you know, parents and kids make the decision in schools, in the classroom, whether they wear a mask, not government officials, you know, that not the government telling you what to do, and what did you do? You just showed up as the government telling these kids that it's not their decision, it's yours, and you know, do it this way. The governor has really shrugged off a lot of these incidents. Uh, you know, something blows up, he doesn't wear a mask at the Super Bowl, and then you know, he says in an interview, "How the hell am I supposed to drink a beer?" And then they put that quote on a beer koozie and sell it uh, merchandise. I don't know if it'll be so easy for him to shrug off this one simply because, as you said, Antonio, these are kids and people do think that there should be uh, certain limits when it comes to how you deal with kids uh, in politics. And as he said, uh, parental rights, you know, they're, they're really championing parental rights this legislative session with various bills, uh, you know, trying to protect uh, parents, uh, you know, ensuring that parents have the right to, to be the ones who teach their kids about certain things like sexuality and uh, race. So it, it does seem to run right against that. And then you had uh, you know, the WFLA, uh, they had a, a number of interviews with some of the parents of these kids who came out and said, yeah, I told my kid to wear a mask and the governor shouldn't be contradicting me. So, uh, you know, on that whole issue of parental rights, he, he definitely seems to, um, you know, have, have run into a problem here. Well, this is not uh, the what the governor was expected to be focusing on here in the final week of the legislative session, which is a hectic time uh, in Tallahassee. Lawmakers are scrambling to pass priority legislation and finalize a budget. John, there are a lot of big issues that haven't uh, come to a conclusion yet, including many of the culture war bills that uh, we've talked about that DeSantis has really championed. Tell us about where those stand and also you know, what's happening with the budget. We talked about that 200 million cut to school districts with man, uh, mass mandates, that's still in play, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, Zach. Yeah, that, that $200 million taken from 12 counties that uh, defied Governor DeSantis on his opposition to mask mandates in schools 
is still being taken by the House and uh, distributed to other counties. Yeah, it is, you know, ironic or whatever uh, because of the, the, this episode with the uh, the University of South Florida appearance by the governor yesterday. It just sort of is a kind of a manifestation of this attack on places that uh, once, you know, required masks. Now it's uh, optional. But, you know, this all goes back to one counties uh, at the height of the pandemic were uh, imposing uh, mask mandates in schools, and the governor signed an executive order to try to stop it. And uh, the, many counties and parents challenged it. So it was, uh, you know, still sort of a, a question whether it was going to stay in effect or not. Uh, it has been translated in Tallahassee speak now to um, these 12 counties defying state law. And uh, well, an executive order is not state law. And a state law on this topic was not passed until uh, the fall, until November. So, um, you know, there, there's a, a little bit of a changing the language here, trying to make the narrative fit the punishment. But on this $200 million that's uh, being uh, redistributed around the state, um, there are signs, I think, that it may go away. In the uh, in the first meeting of the House and Senate budget conferees this week, the, uh, the, the instigator of this penalty, that's Palm Bay Republican uh, Randy Fine, uh, he defended the cut as not really a cut because schools are actually getting more money overall in this budget that's still being worked out. Um, but uh, Senator Doug Broxson, he's a Gulf Breeze Republican who is the lead education negotiator for the Senate. He had a, a kind of a telling response, I thought, to critics at the same negotiation sit down. He, he said, keep in mind, this is the first meeting so uh, in other words, like the $200 million cut is still in play, but he kind of made it sound like we're going to have more meetings and, uh, you know, we're going to be working on this. Um, it, it, it sounds like the Senate wants that $200 million penalty removed, although, you know, remember DeSantis has also weighed in supporting the slap at the mostly urban counties that wouldn't go along with his executive order. Um, and so, you know, those two against one fight sometimes uh, – are, are won by the, the two. So uh, the governor has an ally in the House on this one. So it's still up in, up in the air. But, you know, there, it's one of the few uh, visible signs of conflict right now between the House and Senate. But um, there, there, there doesn't seem to be too many real roadblocks that could hold up this budget. Uh, and, and frankly, a lot of these culture war bills look like they're on their way to final passage as well. The, the House has already approved the controversial legislation that would add new restrictions to how race is discussed in schools and, and in the corporate workplace. And uh, another that would prohibit discussion of sexuality and gender identity in schools from grades one through three, although some fear both of these measures, frankly, are going to have a real chilling effect on how these topics are discussed at all levels in Florida classrooms. And those um, all look like they're on track here the last few days of session. Yeah, yeah. I don't think uh, there, there's nothing's going to derail them. You know, it's just a matter of timing when uh, most of them are, are heading to the Senate. So uh, that's where the, the final passage will probably occur. Uh, and the Senate looks pretty willing to take up these ideas, which uh, DeSantis also has endorsed. And, and, uh, and there was an interesting thing with the the whole the 
so-called don't say gay bill, right, John, where one of the Republican senators had tried to put on an amendment to soften it, but then that was stripped out by other Republicans in the committee. And now that looks like it's going uh, to passage the way the House wants it. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty much uh, in line with the way it was. Uh, there's been some language changing, some, some affirmation, I guess, that this is aimed at grades one through three, for a while there, it looked like it could go beyond those grades, but it's still, the, the opponents are still saying that once this is installed in, in schools, it's going to have a ripple effect up, you know, into the high school level, even where, where uh, there, there's a wariness about touching on some of these topics by, uh, by, by teachers um, with, with students, you know, who right. may be coming out or whatever, you know. Now, the Senate also looks uh, ready to move forward with a bill that requires 12-year term limits for school board members. And uh, it would also expand the ability of uh, parents and community members to object to what kind of books are available in school libraries. That bill looks like it's ready for the Senate floor and will go back to the House probably for final approval. So these bills sort of sum up the kind of session that it's been, you know, where the legislature has plenty of money, but it isn't doing much by way of addressing, you know, affordable housing, lengthy waiting lists for services for people with disabilities, the elderly, those with Alzheimer's. Property insurance is skyrocketing in the state, and it doesn't look like it's going to get any kind of real significant help right now. But these uh, these other hot button issues involving race, gender, and elections, where the governor's call for a new security force to investigate any claims of election fraud. Uh, you've heard that one before. Uh, of course, the, the, the most significant restrictions on abortion in Florida in almost 50 years are also about to take effect. Uh, these are all the priorities for the Republican-led legislature. And, uh, you know, it's funny because uh, I've been covering a lot of sessions for a lot of years, and uh, election year sessions used to have a reputation for being kind of cautious ones where lawmakers were wary of taking up too many divisive issues, fearing that, uh, you know, a potential blowback from voters. But uh, really, in this age of Trump and a Republican voting base that seems to feast on division and red meat, well, that's what's driving the Florida legislature. And we'll see this whole menu of tough-edged legislation approved and sent to DeSantis for a signature by the end of next week. Yeah, and it probably says something about politics in general and how they've changed. You know, it used to be about appealing to swing voters and appealing to the center, but more and more it seems like just trying to fire up your base, basically, and see if you That's can – uh, increased turnout. Uh, if your if your side turns out more than the other side, then you win, and and uh, that seems to have been a pretty successful strategy uh, in Florida. So I guess that's uh, where we're going with some of these bills that appeal to base GOP voters. Well, while Florida lawmakers were pushing culture war bills through the legislature, the Conservative Political Action Conference in Orlando featured speakers airing a constant stream of cultural grievances, with a big focus on what's being taught in schools gender politics, and so-called cancel culture. Even after war broke out in Ukraine on the first day of the conference, the culture war issues dominated in a party that once was defined as hawkish on foreign policy and projecting American values of freedom and democracy abroad. Governor Ron DeSantis ignored Ukraine altogether in his speech and focused on cultural issues and COVID. Marco Rubio compared the threat to democracy in Ukraine to the threat to American freedoms from cancel culture. Donald Trump portrayed himself as a strong supporter 
of Ukraine, even after he was impeached over allegations he withdrew military aid from the country as leverage to get an investigation of Joe Biden. Meanwhile, the CPAC straw poll, which is very closely watched as sort of a barometer of uh, where the GOP base is at, that poll showed Trump is still has a firm grip over the party and heavily um, is heavily favored to win the 2024 presidential nomination with DeSantis in a distant second in a head-to-head -head matchup, but dominating the field if Trump bows out. Antonio, what do you think CPAC says about what's animating the GOP right now? And what, what does the straw poll say about who's going to carry that message going forward? You know, Zach, I watched the proceedings, but you were there covering this in person. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I drew two conclusions from what I found to be a very telling CPAC gathering. First, Trump's emergence as kingmaker in the GOP in the past year is largely because he is where the party's base is in the far right. It's not so much that Trump pulled the, par the party far to the right. It's actually been symbiotic. He, the base is there in that corner. One thing that was really interesting, Antonio, is that everything about CPAC sounded like Trump. You know, it used to be that Trump, uh, you know, is was really sort of uh, steering the party in a different direction and maybe not quite in lockstep. But now everybody there really has a real Trumpian, uh, aggressive uh, approach to, to politics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, a, yeah. I mean, look, CPAC is a conservative gathering, but the definition of conservative these days is way to the right of what it was in the Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush years. If, if anything, you know, that Reagan dinner CPAC holds, they should be called the Barry Goldwater dinner because that's where the party's ideological underpinnings are right now. Uh, you know, let me remind our listeners of what Goldwater's famous 1964 statement that, you know, extremism in the pursuit of liberty is no vice and moderation in defense of that liberty is no virtue. That's like the CPAC message. In fact, this is not really a party that would or a gathering that really would welcome moderates. If you're a more moderate Republican, like former presidential nominee Mitt Romney <clears throat> or even Liz Cheney, who is a crimson red conservative who just happens to reject extremism, you're going to be hard pressed to find a large scale Republican conference to speak at. How about like uh, Nikki Haley, who used to be held up as the future of the, the, future the GOP, of, but, you know, yeah. she says a, a few uh, mildly critical comments of, of Trump and, and uh, she, you know, she steered clear she, of the event. Yeah, you'll get an invite to a club, you know, a Republican club here or a county GOP chapter there, but not a full scale summit like CPAC. And look, and it's not just, just like you said, it's not just policy. It has a lot to do with style. This is the Republican Party that is uncompromising, and that's what it wants its leaders to be, abrasive and in your face. That was especially clear in some of the breakout sessions. You know, we used to say in covering campaigns that when the rhetoric got heated, the gloves had come off. The Republican base these days doesn't even want the gloves on at, at, at all. This isn't political boxing. It's like no-holds-barred MMA. Now, the second observation I made is that how Florida's erstwhile most popular Republican has fallen well behind the pace. You, you know, Marco Rubio was once the state's rising GOP star. Yeah, but if you look at where Florida Republicans are, he's obviously way behind Trump and DeSantis in setting the agenda. And maybe now, as you and John spoke last week, maybe even behind U.S., you know, his fellow U.S. Senator Rick Scott, who, you know, that 11 point plan he threw out there last week. And I would even make the argument that in some parts of Florida, he's, he may well even be behind Matt Gates. Look. Rubio's CPAC speech, and you covered it, you wrote about it, but, you know, it was scheduled for 9 a.m. That's not really a primetime slot here. And, you know, and that speech, well, look, I mean, 
it struck me as he's struggling for a real to find a real connecting message. And I follow his career now for almost two decades. He was clearly a Reagan conservative with this optimistic city on a hill message. But today's Republican Party pendulums between a dark dystopian view of American carnage and this super nationalistic embrace of America first rhetoric. You know, I, I saw him speak a few years ago at a civic luncheon here in West Palm Beach. And my takeaway then was that he was struggling to find a message in the Trump era and his CPAC speech kind of struck me the same way. I mean, you, you, you heard it. What do you think? Yeah, it was a it was a, a short speech and it was it was very vague at first. You know, you couldn't really tell what he was getting at. And, you know, it, it's he eventually got around to this idea that uh, about cancel culture. But it was still a, a very sort of. Uh, disjointed speech and and kind of an odd speech. You know, he tried to say that, uh, oh, you know, it's not just Ukraine where people are losing their freedoms, but here in America, people are losing their freedoms uh, because of cancel culture. And it was an interesting comparison to say, oh, people who are being invaded by a totalitarian dictator and subjugated and uh, at war are, uh, you know, let's let's uh, draw a parallel between people who are, um, you know, getting kicked off of Twitter or something like that. But he he definitely um, tried to tap into you could tell that he wanted to get, you know, that, that he's trying to find his footing with this whole, um, you know, cultural grievance uh, direction that the GOP has gone into. And so, uh, you know, he, he definitely tried to find a message uh, that focused on cancel culture. I'm not sure um, that it was as compelling a message as some of the other uh, folks out there, but um, interesting to see that that's where his head's at. One thing that really stuck out to me was just uh, still how much people really love Trump. I mean, he there's been all this talk about, you know, is the party starting to move away from Trump? Is he still, uh, you know, the head of the party? Uh, you know, that obviously that's that's been a, a question out there for, for years. Uh, every time there's something controversial that happens and, you know, now that he's been out of office for a while, uh, you know, people wonder how much of a grip does he have on the base of the GOP? And, you know, you see various things in polls. Well, you could tell from CPAC that people still really loved him. They love DeSantis, too. And I think that they really uh, see him as the future of the party in a big way. But if it's a head to head matchup with Trump and DeSantis, which is being speculated about, you know, DeSantis has said, you know, I he has refused to rule out uh, running against Trump in 2024. He's never really indicated that he will, but he is indicated that he's, um, you know, positioning himself uh, potentially to, to run in 2024, maybe especially if, if Trump bows out. But there's been talk of, hey, maybe maybe DeSantis is getting strong enough that he really could challenge Trump. And uh, it didn't really seem like that at CPAC, although from that poll, he did get, I think, 28 percent, which is which is pretty, pretty good uh, against Trump. I mean, that's not peanuts, but it's it's still nowhere near close enough um, to actually take him on in, in a meaning in meaningful way. Uh, so I, it, you really did see just how much the GOP still is, is the party of Trump for sure. Well, one uh, Republican who's making a bid to help steer the party's future direction is Florida Senator Rick Scott, who unveiled an 11-point plan for the GOP last week. The plan included everything from term limits on federal lawmakers to ensuring children say the Pledge of Allegiance. But the part that attracted the most attention was a proposal to ensure 
every American pays some level of income tax. Many Americans don't pay income taxes for various reasons, including not making enough money, uh, having tax deductions that exceed their tax liabilities, things like that. Critics on both the right and the left slam Scott's proposal as a massive tax increase. Even Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell weighed in this week against the income tax idea. McConnell also criticized uh, Scott's proposal to sunset every federal law after five years, which would end Medicare and Social Security, which are two pretty popular programs. Those would be uh, ended unless Congress reauthorized them. Some viewed Scott's 11-point plan as a sign he wants to challenge McConnell for majority leader if the GOP win backs control of the chamber. And obviously, uh, you know, Trump uh, has, has criticized McConnell as the old crow. He seems to be looking for a new majority leader. So maybe Scott's trying to position himself as, as Trump's pick uh, if uh, Trump wins re-election and uh, the GOP takes over the majority. Antonio, whatever Scott's ambitions, McConnell uh, doesn't seem to be too happy about his plan, does he? No, and by the way, it's—I think you meant broken old crow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an important <laughs> adjective. <laughs> Look, you know, you know what Scott—he he did what here in the three hundred five, what we call a, a cañonazo. That means when someone cuts you off in, in you know, bumper to bumper traffic on I ninety five, or they elbow their way into something. That's what Scott did. He kind of interjected himself into this debate, and may have done some more damage by creating a distraction that actually may give the struggling Democrats fodder for a fight. Look, you don't mess with Social Security and Medicare in Florida. And yet, as you just mentioned, that's what Scott's 11-point plan kind of does. It raises questions about the survival of those two major entitlement programs, particularly in a Congress where you can't get people to agree on you know, what to have for dessert. And I and I'm really I'm I'm stunned so far that no Democrat has come out with an ad saying that you know Rick Scott wants to defund Social Security and Medicare. In addition, as you and John discussed last week, and you just referenced today, you know Scott kind of opened the door to lots of speculation about what his motives are. Is he prepping for a 2024 White House run, or more to McConnell's chagrin, is Scott angling to depose him as the Republicans' leader in the U.S. Senate? Or maybe he's just trying to put himself back in the conversation. You know, for a while there, it seemed like Rick Scott disappeared and nobody was really talking about him. And, you know, that's not the case anymore. No, it's not. But here's the thing. You know, even if Scott doesn't intend to challenge McConnell or run for the White House, he's broken ranks with the congressional GOP effort to lockstep a united front going into the 2022 elections. You know, the goal has been all along for more than a year not to say anything that speaks to division. That's one of the reasons that January 6th committee members Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger have been excoriated by the GOP House leadership because they fear the January 6th committee will report from that committee will torpedo their effort to win a House majority in November. So here comes Scott, who's actually in charge of the fundraising effort to win a Senate majority with a potentially divisive policy statement that, as you said, puts a massive tax increase on the table and also the potential of the future of Social Security and Medicare in doubt. So I, still, I, I guess you can say that, yeah, you're right. Scott got a lot of attention, a lot of applause from the right corners of the GOP and MAGA world, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a year in which he and, and Rubio, like I said earlier, have kind of been occluded by Trump's emergence as kingmaker and DeSantis' rising star. But, but you know, uh, it kind of threw a wrench in some of the, the GOP United Front plans. Yeah, Scott's doubling down, but it was still remarkable to see McConnell come out and basically criticize him uh, uh, pretty uh, aggressively in public 
like that. Well, we'll move on to some numbers. John, you want to tell us about yours? Yeah, Zach, uh, my four is uh, four Florida Democratic members of Congress who are leaving their seats this year. Uh, Congressman Ted Deutsch, a Democrat who represents parts of Broward and Palm Beach counties, uh, this week announced that he's not seeking re-election this year after seven terms in Congress. He's going to become uh, chief executive officer of the American Jewish Committee, but his uh, departure is really another hit for Democrats uh, struggling to maintain control of Congress. Um, Also leaving along with Deutsch out of Florida are Orlando Democratic Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy, and uh, her neighbor, uh, Orlando Democratic uh, Congresswoman Val Demings, and St. Petersburg Democrat Charlie Crist. Now, now Demings is running for Senate against Republican Marco Rubio, and Crist is running for the Democratic nomination for governor to challenge Ron DeSantis. But they are vacating their congressional seats. Uh, all told, uh, 31 Democrats in Congress are leaving either retiring or uh, running for another office. That 31 Democrats that are heading to the exit, that compares to 15 Republicans. So basically, if the election was held today, uh, the Democratic majority in Congress could be flipped if six Democratic seats were turned Republican. So um, there are more congressional Democrats leaving in Florida right now than in any other state. And uh, some of these seats, admittedly, are likely to be won by Democrats, but, you know, maybe even all four of them. But losing incumbents means that Democrats are going to have to work a little harder and spend, you know, probably a lot more money to get a lesser known candidate across the finish line in November. And uh, Republicans will sense an opening and maybe see a chance of taking at least one or two of these Democratic seats in Florida with the right candidate and the right momentum in November. So uh, so we'll see. But uh, each departure is significant. Always a bad time when uh, you see a lot of members of your party heading to the exits. It's a sign uh, that uh, maybe they don't see a good election coming. Antonio, you want to tell us about your number? Yeah, 348,000 as in three. $148,000. That is the median price of a single family home in the state of Florida as we entered the year 2022. That is more than $200,000 from a decade ago in 2012 and more than $50,000 just from a, this time a year ago. Now, the sharp rise in home prices is an indicator of a healthy, booming economy. One reason prices go up, of course, is demand. And as we have noted, and as the governor has said, there is robust migration of people to the Sunshine State or rather, the free state of Florida. But with that comes a boom in real estate prices that has made housing unaffordable for wide swaths of Floridians. You know, Zach, where you're at, the team at the uh, Sarasota Herald Tribune has been writing about surging home prices. We have done so here too in Palm Beach County. By the way, the, the median price in this county in January was $526,000. That's almost $200,000 more than the state median price. That doesn't even take into account what's happening with rental price increases. And and we're hearing lots of anecdotal stories about people that are having to leave their rental units because they can no longer afford it. And they're having, to hard place, they're having a hard time finding a place to live. Now, all of this is on top of a slew of other price increases. FPL rang in the new year with another increase in power bills. Customers who paid a hundred bucks a year last year for, you know, paid a hundred dollars a month last year for a typical bill of 1,000 kilowatt hours are now going to be charged $120. Gasoline prices in Florida are near an eight-year high, with some stations already charging $4 a gallon in Palm Beach County. None of this is good for consumers who have been under this all-out inflation assault. Um, And it's not good for economic growth either. But And at the grassroots level, 
it's what just everybody is talking about, particularly the home prices and the rental unit prices. So our politics, you know, not many politicians in Florida, the political leadership isn't talking about this issue. It's not on their radar, but it is on the grassroots level. And if it's on the grassroots level, then you know what? We're going to raise it here in the podcast, too. <laughs> it does seem like it's really ripe for somebody to, to champion and, and try and make this uh, the centerpiece of, of their campaign going into this next election cycle. But I haven't really seen it happen uh, yet. Well, my number is 85, as in Donald Trump spoke for 85 minutes, nearly an hour and a half at CPAC. And he still didn't find time to mention DeSantis who also didn't mention Trump in his speech, which could fuel more speculation about tensions between the two GOP stars. Trump went out of his way to praise other elected officials from Florida, such as Rick Scott and Matt Gates, who attended his speech. But DeSantis wasn't there for the speech. Trump also praised GOP governors in general for their COVID-19 response. No governor in the nation is more famous than DeSantis for his COVID policies, but Trump declined to single him out, even as speaker after speaker at CPAC lauded DeSantis on COVID. Before CPAC started, there was even speculation by a prominent conservative writer that Trump's team may have maneuvered to get DeSantis a bad speaking spot at CPAC so he wouldn't outshine Trump. DeSantis spoke in the afternoon on the first day of the conference at a time when many people had yet to arrive. The room wasn't full for his speech. The CPAC organizer denied it was a bad speaking slot and the straw poll still showed a ton of support from conference attendees for DeSantis, but there was no doubt that Trump was the star of the show. That wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy. And thanks to all of you for listening. We're out of here.